we are in Second Samuel chapter 7 tonight. We're just going to read first 18 verses of that chapter. You'll remember that David is the king now. Uh, we, we started last week, Samuel, second, Samuel, second, second Samuel chapter 6, and David's the king now. He has become king. He's moved the capital uh, of Israel to Jerusalem. Uh, he has defeated the Philistines, and now we pick up the story. He, is, he has his own house. He has his own palace. Um, everything seems to be settling in very well for him and his kingdom. Just at the outset of this passage, I want to tell you this. This is one of the most pivotal passages in all of your Old Testament. Okay? This is one of the most pivotal passages in all of your Old Testament. It's a passage of promise, God's promise. And it is actually the climax of all the promises of the Old Testament. Okay? That makes it important. Okay? Over and over again in the Old Testament, from the beginning of the Bible, we see God relating to his people in the form of and on the basis of his promises. And what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there you go, is that God is now going to show us What all those other promises have been leading up to. We have the promise in Genesis 3 after the fall that God comes into the garden and he promises Adam and Eve. He says that the seed of the woman is destined to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And here in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that seed is revealed to be a kingly seed, a royal seed. Genesis chapter 9, he promises Noah and his family that he will never again destroy the earth by water and that he will not let wickedness run rampant again on the earth. And now we see that that promise will find its fulfillment in a king who will defeat all of God's and all his people's enemies. Genesis 12 and 15, we have God promising to Abraham a land that his offspring will possess and they will become a great nation there. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that actually that land is going to come under its most full fruition in the Davidic monarchy. Exodus, the law given through Moses at Mount Sinai, we see in 2 Samuel 7 that the greatest blessing through the law will be when God's people are ruled by a charitable and righteous law giver. Okay? This is the hinge of the David story. It is one of the most important passages in your Old Testament, and I wish we had time to do it justice, but we're going to run through it tonight. I want to see three things before I read this, three things that you can be looking for. It's a gracious promise. It's a sovereign promise. It's a forever promise, eternal promise, okay? Let's read God's Word together, Second uh, Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go and do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, 
And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And then King David went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? This is God's word for us tonight. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. This is a passage about promise, and I want to see three things in this promise. It's a gracious promise, it's a sovereign promise, it's a forever promise, it's an eternal promise. The gracious promise, we kind of see this in the first seven verses, okay? Verse 1 tells us that David lives in his own house, and he has rest from all his enemies, okay? We've sprinted through in six weeks, 20 years of chronology here. We found David as a young boy out in the field, tending his family's flock. We've seen him be anointed king. We've seen him slay the giant. We've seen him flee from Saul. We've seen him fight God's enemies. We've seen him become king and bring the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. All these things that happened, God has been, uh, David has been dependent on God. He's been faithful even when times were tough. And so very naturally he looks at his life and he says, okay, I've got a house. I'm secure, but the ark of God is still in a tent got to do something about it. And it's, it's a noble aspiration. There's nothing wrong with what David wants to do here. David's looking around at all God has given him, all God has done for him. He says, wait a minute, I need to do something for God, right? That's kind of his motivation here. But it's, what's interesting to us is as, as quickly as that starts, God then comes in and says, no, 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 David, that's not how it's going to happen. Yes, David, I have done all these things for you but I'm not going to let you do anything for me. I'm not going to let you do this great thing for me. This is not how it's going to go down. But see, in other nations, that's exactly how it went down. We have all these examples kind of of the time, the ancient Near East, whether it was the Egyptian dynasties or the Philistine dynasties, Assyrians, whoever it was, when a kingdom or a dynasty would begin, what the king would do as he's beginning to form his kingdom is he would build a great temple to his God. That would be at the beginning of his kingdom. And kind of the picture was he'd build a big temple to his God and then he would go out and his kingdom would find success and blessing from the God whose house The king had set up, build a God a house, then the God would in turn establish the king's power and reign. And what God is saying to David is, it's not going to go down like that. 
This relationship that you and I have, that I have with my people, it is not going to go down with that. And it's not necessarily that David was trying to secure anything from God. Uh, A guy named Eugene Peterson, he says it like this. He says, David was in danger at this point of crossing over the line from being full of God to being full of himself. Very fine line David is towing here. And look at verse 6 and 7, how God responds here. Verse 6 and 7, God says, I've never lived in a house. I've never asked for a house, but only a tent. Because my people dwell in tents, and that's all I've needed. What's God saying to David? I think what God is in essence saying to David is this. David, I don't need you to do anything. David, I don't need anything. I have never needed anything anything. And so what he's telling him is, is this thing that we've got going on, if I let you build me a temple, it actually will turn it upside down. Because I'm not like other gods. I don't bless people who do things for me. I bless people unconditionally. I bless people. I protect people. I love people because of who I am, not because of who they are. And I don't want to mess that up. I don't want anyone to get the wrong picture. So basically, at this critical juncture in David's life and in the life of Israel, God does not want them to lose sight of his grace. (laughs) There it is again. I feel like I've said it every week. I will not let you get the wrong picture. I'm a God who loves and dwells with my people because I am a God of grace. That's how I operate. And again, I mean, every week, how often has this come up in David's life already? Over and over and over again. It's going to continue to come up over and over because what we repeatedly see in the history of the life of God's people is that God's people have the hardest time believing that it's actually true. God's people have a hard time of letting the reality of God's grace be a reality in their lives. So many of our problems, so many of our worries, so many of our stresses, so many of our anxieties stem from this one overarching fact that we live life as if it is all dependent on us. Your natural bent is to live your life like everything depends on you. That's it. And there's, I think there's kind of, there's one of two ways that you can kind of see this in your life. For most of you, or not most of you, but a lot of you, um, you live this out by doing everything, right? You do everything. You're constantly filling your plate, your schedule, your jar, just hoping that it won't be empty. Hoping that one day it will be full, but it never is. And what actually happens, what I find amazing is that in your quest to do everything, what actually happens to you is you actually become a person who can commit to nothing. The person who tries to do everything is the person who can commit to nothing. Commitment, right? We all have problems with it. But the thing is, you don't have to be a doer. I'm not a doer by nature, um, You don't have to be a doer to live like it all depends on you. Your laziness, I'm speaking to myself here. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Your laziness, what your laziness is showing forth is that you can't deal with the fact that it all depends on you. And so you just do nothing. 
to avoid it, to let go. How did this get low? Did I lower it? Sorry, that bothers me. Um, I just do that while I talk. But here's the thing, both of them, both the doer and the lazy person, both of them, both of those ways of living, both of those ways of dealing with the fear, the struggle, the burden that you think everything depends on you, both of them directly influence how you live for God. Both of them directly influence how you relate to God, how you approach God, how you think God relates to you. Because you live as if God's commitment, God's promises, God's love for us rests entirely on your shoulders. Because you're asked or you think about what is, how are me and God? And your first thought is what? How you're doing. Your performance. What kind of day you've had, what kind of week you've had, what kind of grades you're making, what kind of people are saying what kinds of things about you. He's either okay with me or he's disappointed in me. And what God is saying to David is this, I am not going to let you go there. I don't want to let you go there. This isn't about you, your performance, you're securing my blessing and acceptance. It's about my grace toward you. And David, I want this to be clear in your life, and I want it to be clear in the life of my people. Because you've got to stop, at least ask yourself at the outset, what is your view of God? What does God require of you? What does God want with you? If I asked you that, how would you answer it on the spot? What does God want with you? Sneaking suspicion that most of you, your first inclination is to think, what am I supposed to be doing? And God says, I don't want it to be like that. So he moves on. You get verses 8 through 11. We see that this is a sovereign promise. How is David going, I mean, sorry, how is God going to get David and us to see the free grace of his promises, to see them as a reality in our lives? And that's the beauty, I think, of the the whole structure of this passage. Look at verse 5. I love this. Verse 5, the first thing God wants to say to David is, would you build me a house? And then the whole rest of the passage, God makes himself the subject in virtually every sentence. Would you build me a house? No, I did this. I'm doing this. I'm going to do this. How does the grace of God's promise, the sovereign grace of God's promise, become a reality in my life? becomes a reality in my life when I begin to see that God's promises are not about what I am supposed to do. But instead, when I see them for what they are, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Something he repeats over and over and over again throughout the Bible to his people. It's the plot line. I would argue is the plot line of the entire story of the Bible. What I have done, what I am doing, and what I will do. Over and over and over again. This is why the God of the Bible is different than any other God. He simply is. And you cannot say all religions are the same because... One, all religions have exclusive claims about God. But here, the God of this Bible is different from every other religion because every other religion says, here is the way to God. Here is the path to God. Here's the path to walk. Here's the mountain to climb. Here's the way, right? The state to achieve, whatever it is. And then you get to God. Here it is. Go through it. And then you get to God. But the God of the Bible is over and over again saying, no, this is me. Come to you. This is me. 
come to you. Every other religion, you get right by your efforts, but not with this God. In this God, it's his efforts to you. Every other religion, your failure to achieve is what disqualifies you. But with this God, the only thing that disqualifies you is your refusal to admit your failure. An illustration a friend likes to use that I like a lot. Uh, he says that we all basically treat, uh, we all basically live like God is dating us, right? Um, let's, 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 let's think about dating for a second. The biggest reason dating is such an enigma to you people, to all you people, um, is because it's just one big ball of insecurity, is it not? Just the thought of dating just makes you insecure, does it not? Because in a dating relationship, this enigma dating, the reason it's not in the Bible is because we're, we were dumb enough to make it up. Uh, no, I'm joking. Um, dating. It's this relationship that is entirely defined. That I, in this relationship, I know that I'm being entirely judged on my performance. I'm relating to this other person entirely based on my performance. Also, why breakups crush you. Because no matter what the reason for your breakup is, what it, the only thing it tells you is that you did not measure up for this person, right? A friend of mine tells a story about when he was dating his wife that um, he meant to send a text to a friend and he accidentally sent it to her and it said this, talk to her last night, amazing. And he says, as soon as he realized that he had sent it to her, he was in a coma for like a week. Um, he, says, he, he says he analyzed that text for a month and he said, it's over now. It's over because she's going to think I'm coming on too strong. Like, what am I going to do? And so, like, he said he literally looked at that text message once a day for a month, not knowing what was going to happen. The problem is, don't act like you're immune from that. No, come on. The problem is, this is the problem. We think that is how God relates to us. And because of that, we are radically insecure. We're just big balls of insecurity. The Bible says, though, however, if we are in Christ, then God is not dating us. He's actually married to us. His commitment is not based on our performance. His commitment is based on His commitment. Please get that. His commitment is not based on our performance. His commitment is based, it's founded upon, it is sure because it is founded on his commitment. That's it. Why does he love me? Because he loves me. That's it. Look at verse 8. David, I took you from the pasture. You were just a shepherd boy. I set you over my people, Israel. David, I didn't come into your life because of who you were. Because of what you were doing, because of what you could do, I took you because what I was going to do with you. Look at verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them and I will give them rest from all their enemies. Why Israel? 
Why not Philistia? Why not Egypt? Why not the Hittites? Why not the Jebusites? Why not all these other names that we read in the Old Testament? Why not? Why does he come to Israel and say, you will be the apple of my eye. You will be a kingdom of priests to me. You will be my treasured possession. I will take you as to myself as a bride. Why Israel? Because if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you realize Israel could sin with the best of them, right? And the picture's clear. It's nothing about Israel. It's just that God loved them. That's it. It's not a thing in them, but his heart on them. If we really got this about God's love for us, what would it do? I think we get the grand hint in verse 18. That's why I wanted to read verse 18. So we read in verse 18 that after David gets this word from God, we read that he went in and he sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Eugene Peterson says this might be the single most critical act that David ever did as king. Sitting and resting in who God is and what he'd done. You see, when you and I truly let God's sovereign grace penetrate our lives, when we truly let it come home, we can sit. We can rest. We can let ourselves be broken open before God. Because we know that there's a security in knowing that it's not about what I must do, but it's wholly about what He has done. To be chosen of God... Most people would say, well, wouldn't that make us arrogant to, to think that we are the chosen of God, that we, are, that, we are, uh, that we are worthy of the chosen love of God? Well, actually, it's quite the opposite. It should be. Because for those who know God's sovereign, redeeming love, we should be the most broken and humble people. We should be the ones broken of all pride and all self-sufficiency that is constantly pushing other people away. We should be the ones broken of our need to always be right. Broken of our compulsion to always be going, to always be doing. Broken of our obsession with ourselves. And free to actually love and serve other people where they are. Because that's what God did for us. It's a sovereign promise. The last thing here. It's not just gracious, it's not just sovereign, it's eternal, it's forever. Look at verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you will shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Forever, 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 forever. Sorry. But here's the thing. And you're going to find this out after spring break if you stick with us. Didn't David kind of disappoint? Let's see. Committed adultery and murdered the, the girl's husband, among other things. Didn't David's sons disappoint? They killed each other. One of them leads a civil war against David. 
Didn't all the kings that came after him mess up? A lot of them did, and a lot of them were outright wicked. Didn't the Davidic dynasty come to an end in 586 B.C.? Yes, it did. Again, context of this passage is David wanted to do something for God, and God says, no, David, I'm going to do something for you. And in doing something for you, I'm doing something for my people forever. And nothing will stop it. Nothing. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, death will not stop it. Verses 14 and 15, sin will not destroy it. Yeah, guess what? You're going to sin, your sons are going to sin, and all the kings after you are going to sin. But that's not going to stop my promise. 16 and 17, time will never run out for this promise. What God promises for David and his people is not just a king but the king. That's what he's promising. The king who will secure peace and rest from all gods and his people's enemies. The king who will restore all the wrong, with our, that all that's wrong with our lives in the world. The, ki- the king whose kingdom will never fail and will have no end. The whole Old Testament builds on longing and waiting for this king. But if you read through the Old Testament, if you read through the New Testament, if you read through church history, if you look at your own life, what do you see? But there's so much sin. But there's so much sadness and disappointment and hardship. Everyone keeps longing and longing and looking and looking and waiting and waiting. And there's this kind of rising and falling of hope over and over and over again. And then comes the greatest news that the world has ever heard. In Luke chapter 1, verses 32, the angel says to Mary, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High God. And God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, the beauty of the manger, the beauty of the baby in the manger is not just that it's a savior, it's that he's the king. He's the king. He was the son with whom the father was well pleased. He healed the sick. He healed the lame and the blind. He fed the hungry. He forgave sinners. We get this picture of Jesus. Everything he touches is made right again. It's what Tolkien is getting at at the end of the Lord of the Rings, right? The hands of the king are healing hands, and so shall the rightful king be known. How committed is God to this kingdom? That's the story of the whole Bible. The whole Bible, that God created everything perfect, everything in paradise. And we turned from Him and everything was factured. And now nothing works right. There's sickness, there's death, there's loneliness, there's racism, there's greed, there's depression, there's pain, there's sorrow, there's all of it, right? But there is hope because there is a King who will make it all right again. All of it. Death will not stop his kingdom. So Jesus dies, but he doesn't stay dead. 
He's resurrected from the dead. And now we can sing, as Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Sin will not thwart his promise and will not thwart his kingdom. So Jesus goes to the cross. The innocent one takes and pays the debt of our sin. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin that we might be the righteousness of God. Time will never run out on this promise. Revelation 1.8, Jesus saying, I am the Alpha And the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. I just got to ask you tonight as we head into the spring break. Are you tired of trying to prove yourself? Are you tired of trying to fix yourself? Are you tired of worrying? Are you tired of fearing? Are you tired of stressing? Are you tired of being confused and not knowing? Are you tired of the hurting? The question that this passage screams to us is, what if salvation, restoration, redemption, what if it is not to be found in your busyness? What if it's not about your performance? But rather, what if it is to be found in a promise? And we think to ourselves, really? A promise? But then we read what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. And this is what I'll end with. For all the promises of God find their yes... In him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Can I get an amen? Amen. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we need a king. We need one who will make it right. We need one who will be committed to us. Because, Father, we know that on our best days, it's hard for us to be committed to anything but ourselves. We're broken, we are wounded, we are sick, and we are sore. But we know that you have offered to us, in your Son, a King. A King with healing hands. We pray that you would entrust us to those hands tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.